Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Thanks for downloading Making a Killing. I'm Bethany McLean. We've had some amazingly fun conversations so far in the series. My favorite, I think, is my old friend Alex Gibney talking about the line between a visionary and a fraudster. It's a theme that we return to again and again. Back in 1995, I got my start in journalism when I joined Fortune magazine as a fact checker. Well, we had more august titles. They called us reporters but we were fact checkers. We are responsible not just for the accuracy of individual facts. Is the car blue? Is it pale blue or dark blue? But for the defensibility of the point of view that the story espoused. I'll always remember being given my first story to check. It was something about 401k plans and it sounded very convincing, but it was all wrong. That was the first time I realized that authoritative seeming words in black and white can be extremely misleading, if not outright false. I know. That sounds hopelessly naive in an era where, as Bloomberg just reported, fake news is such a threat to U.S. security that the Defense Department is launching a project to repel, quote, large-scale automated disinformation attacks. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, wants custom software that can unearth fake stories, photos, video, and audio clips, maybe even eventually detect malicious intent and prevent fake news from going viral. Of course, the big social media companies are also trying, I think, sort of, 
In late 2016, after the deluge of criticism about online disinformation during the presidential election, Facebook announced its third-party fact-checking project. Independent organizations would debunk false news stories, and Facebook would make the findings obvious to users, even downranking the relevant post in its newsfeed. Google also has a problem that's supposed to help news organizations tag stories that debunk misinformation so that Google News can more easily feature the correct information. But is it a losing battle? We're not just fighting plain old mistakes anymore. We're fighting bias, infiltration by foreign powers, and maybe even our own government. President Trump's political allies are trying to raise at least $2 million to investigate reporters and editors at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other outlets, according to Axios, in order to make allegations of bias by social media platforms a core part of their 2020 strategy. The consequences of this are huge. By the time 2020 is over, trust in all sources of information will be low and perhaps unrecoverable, wrote Axios's Mike Allen, who also said this, a nation without shared truth will be hard to impossible to govern. So I'm excited to talk to Kyle Pope about this. Kyle is a longtime journalist who's been an editor at Condé Nast and the Wall Street Journal, among other places, and he's currently the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review, which says its mission is to be the intellectual leader in the rapidly changing world of journalism. CJR just published a piece about how Facebook's fact-checking program is in fact falling short. And of course, CJR is also avidly covering this larger issue of fake news. So Kyle, you've been a journalist for a really long time. So take me back to when you got started in your days as an editor in the old world of print and what the fact-checking process was all about. I started my career in local and regional newspapers, and there wasn't really a fact-checking function then, even though it was all, all print. Yep. Um, my, my first real experience with fact-checking came at the Wall Street Journal, where I worked for 10 years. And when I started there, it was like, I think in 1992, the first thing they had, which is instructive because it doesn't exist pretty much anywhere. They had like a, they call it a spot news desk and they put you through like a boot camp. So you, you had to work there. You had every new reporter, no matter what you were hired to do, had to come to New York. I was hired in Dallas had to come to New York and spend a week going through this boot camp where they would just, they would teach you the basics about how to write an earnings story, how to read an SEC document, what databases you could access to find people. And, and it was a real tutorial. Uh, I remember, I remember distinctly the, the woman who ran it was like, she was dead serious and really sort of enmeshed in this. And every time you would do an earnings story as a young reporter, she would look it over and she would come back to you and say, okay, well, you did this wrong. There's a difference between operating income and net income that you don't understand. You need to figure that out. And anyway, there was a whole process. I don't remember, frankly, whether there was a separate fact-checking operation for the whole newspaper. The journal, though, was extremely heavily edited. I mean, there was like two or three people, at least, who would read over every story and really comb through it. I mean, I think that was the case for a lot of newspapers. I mean, the fact-checking function was most robust at magazines, Yes, not so much in newspapers. And then what happened is, as we moved from print newspapers, you know, in hindsight, we didn't realize at the time, but we had 
the luxury of time and we had forever right. to do these stories and yeah. edit I'd, these I'd stories. I'd get stories a week, a couple of weeks before they were due to run yeah, and then be turned over to me as the fact checker. Yeah, and, right? but the magazines had this like crazy robust fact checking operation that all that has sort of gone away. I know. It's actually, it's astounding because there's a woman named Roz Berlin who was the chief of reporters at Fortune. And when I got there, I, she taught me how you checked facts. Yeah. And it, you know, if it was, it was, if it had already been reported, it had to have been reported in three places. If it uh-huh. hadn't been reported in three places, you needed to call. You had to use a red pen to check things and a blue pen to do other things. But it was this whole elaborate procedure around yeah. around fact checking. You know what's sad about that? I mean, when you say that, I mean, I imagine the response that we would get from a lot of quarters is how over the top that was and yeah. how like unnecessary in a way. And did it really make a difference? And I think, you know, you talked in your intro about trust in media. I think it did make a difference. And I think, I think it did make a I difference think readers, too. I mean, the most damaging thing you can do a story in a story is get a sort of simple fact that the reader knows is true wrong. Right. So if you say Smith Street is runs parallel uh, between 8th and 9th and they know that it's between 9th and 10th, it discredits the entire piece. Absolutely. Even though it's a little tiny thing that may not even be that relevant to the argument that you're making. And your know, readers, I think are seeing more and more of those kind of mistakes yep. because of what's happening in the journalism business. So do you think before we even get to the social media sites like Facebook, do you think we're sowing the seeds of our own demise in some ways? Yeah. I mean, we got, we've gotten incredibly sloppy. And can we be anything but sloppy given the deadline pressures that yeah, exist we today? Can. We, we can. I think so too. <laughs> I, I recently, I, ha- I had a job opening for an editor and because of the market, I, there's a lot of people in the market. I can't tell you how many people I talk to, editors, whose job it was to read 20, 30 pieces a day. Wow. Like These are like sort of content farms, right? And they're just these mills. I mean, a couple of them are names that you would recognize. And I actually feel really like what a terrible thing for like a really talented 20-something-year-old journalist to be doing, spending their day like trying to just hash through 20 or 30 posts. That is a business model that we set up to get as many clicks as we can, a lot of times to feed the private equity owners or whoever it was that are owning these news outlets. And our job is to sort of fight back and say, no, 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 no. We're doing journalism here. We can't do 20 or 30 posts a day and do real journalism. You know, if that doesn't work, we've got to do something else. I was actually thinking when you were talking, I mean, how much the world has changed in whatever it is, 15, 20 years from the days where you'd have three editors on a story, on one story, right, that might take them two weeks for all yeah. of them to look through it and check everything to one editor being responsible to, for 20 to 30 pieces a day. That's just, it's a shocking transformation. Yeah. But did we have a choice given the existential threat to journalism? Is there a turning point or was there a turning point? Well, our decision on this didn't turn out so well, right? Right. I mean, we made a decision to go this way to try to sort of salvage the business and it didn't work. Right. This all reminds me of my ill-fated and painful year and a half I spent working for Jared Kushner. Yeah. Who, who was, who owned the New York Observer. He had bought That's it. That's right. And I came I, in as his first editor and he was one of these people that he's not a journalist and he didn't care about journalism. And his whole thing was like, his role model was Business Insider. Yep. And he would say to me like, you know, they have, whatever the numbers were, they've got only, they've got 20% more people than you, but they're doing 200% more stories. Like, why can't you keep up with that? And I was like, well, they don't do the kind of stories that we do. Right. We take more time. And, and he just could not see it. He was like, that makes no sense to me. You guys are idiots. 
And then, of course, it all blew up and I got fired. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> which pro- which probably in some ways was was not bad. Now, right? <laughs> in hindsight, it's one of the great badges of honor that I have. But, yeah, but. Th- that was the mentality at the time. And there weren't enough editors um, who were willing to stand up to people like him and say, you know what, this is all, this is frankly bullshit. And, and you know, it's not journalism that you're talking about. It's something else. Right. It does show the myriad ways in which journalism can't be slotted into the things that are important in the modern world, by which I mean productivity, right? Number of clicks, all of those measurements, business measurements don't really apply to or shouldn't really apply to journalism. And yet we embrace them. Yeah, there was just sort of profound insecurity at the heart of it. You know, like we just we didn't know how we were going to keep the lights on at any of these places. And we didn't know what journalism was going to look like. So we tried all this experimentation with volume and with speed and with brevity. And, and I think, you know, even though it's still, it's an incredibly difficult time financially, I I almost think that we're in a better place now only because I think our, our mission and purpose have been clarified. Yeah. Right. And I think, I think that we have a better sense of like, we can try all this stuff and, it it may work briefly, sort of like the pivot to video or can I say the pivot <laughs> the to podcasting? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Pivot to podcasting, exactly. Um, but you know what? Unless it's unless there's quality there and unless it's good and unless there's real value to readers in, tell, in terms of telling them something they know that they can believe, then it's going to disappear. And so I'm trying to think about how this change in the way we all did journalism intersected with the move towards social media. And it strikes me as sort of a vicious spiral downward where we did what we did in response to the rise of social media. And then the dissemination by social media exacerbated the, the problems. Is, is that is that how you'd think about yeah, it? Yeah, I think it's going to go down as one of the great mistakes in communication. This idea of like turning your content, your relationship with your audience over to somebody else that doesn't share your values. I mean, it'd be sort of like having somebody say to me, you know, if I spend a lot of money to send my kids to private school and they say, well, we can, we can educate your kids for like a lot less. Right. You you spend thousands of dollars. We can do it for a few hundred bucks. And, but, but me not like taking any initiative to find out what's up with these people or do they even know what they're doing or do they even care about the same stuff that I care about and then be shocked that they did a lame job or that they even did harm. And it's almost like that. I mean, the relationship we have with our audience, I mean, that is like, that's built up over decades and decades and decades. And if you think about you, Bethany McLean, have a, have a brand in the market, right? Because of work that you did. I, I, I suppose, although it pains me to think that way, but yes. <laughs> you do. And it's because of work that you did that has a certain amount of excellence. And um, there are people in who follow especially business news, who know you and trust you because of stuff that you did sometimes decades ago, and you didn't screw it up along the way. So you still have that. Right. That took so much effort to get. And these media organizations had that. And then they, then for this desperation for clicks, they turned it over to these Silicon Valley companies who'd had none of those values and none of those interests. And it was all a black box. Like they would say, Hey, can you tell me like, how you reach people or what kind of algorithm you use or do you track people? Oh, no, no, we can't tell you that. It's a trade secret. Please? No, can't. Okay, fine. It's going to end up being a massive mistake. And I think we're all now 
recognizing that. Recognizing it's more obvious. It's interesting what a giant loss of confidence, a collective giant loss of confidence can cause you to do, right? You know, here we have Facebook has access to all these people. We want access to all these people. We sort of trusted them to take our content. Or we didn't and use trust it. them, but we didn't even we didn't we didn't, we didn't want to think about what the consequences were of not going that way yeah. or taking take we we chose what looked like the easier path. Yeah. Right. I think about this irony all the time because Google and Facebook couldn't exist without us. In a sense, they're parasites, right? And yet the parasite became more powerful than the host in many ways. And if they destroy journalism, they destroy themselves. I think but, about this every time I send out a tweet. Like I'm basically producing content for these people. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm doing that. I don't make a penny out of it. They're profiting from it. And it's my content. I had actually never thought of it that way. And that is so obviously true. Yeah. (laughs) Why are we doing that? Because somehow we've bought into this. So let's move to Facebook. They're trying, right? Is that a fair way to characterize it, to combat fake news? I, I think they're trying to get good PR. I think they want to look like they're doing something. I don't really think they want to do something. And why? Because it doesn't fulfill their business interests. I mean, their job is to get as many clicks as they can and to to get as much engagement as they can. And trying to incentivize people not to click on stuff, that's not what their business is about. And in fact, the more of our base instinct that they can appeal to and the more that gets people to respond, the bigger they get. Do you think about the tragedy of the gap between that rhetoric from Silicon Valley about make the world a better place and this very harsh business reality? Yeah, you know, I don't see it as tragedy. I, I, I find it to be completely cynical. Cynical. Hmm. And, and calculated. I mean, I've really since I came into this job at CJR, I've really turned a corner, as you can hear. Yeah. <laughs> on these, I can. <laughs> on these companies. And I've spent a lot of time with them. Because I've really been trying to, like, get my head around all of this. And I've been trying to get my head around what makes them tick. First, I was like, why can't they seem to get their arms around this? Then I became convinced that they have no interest in getting their arms around that. But that, too, was interesting. What convinced you of that? What were, what were the key moments? What did you hear and see? I mean, it's not an open secret. They spent a lot of effort courting media journalist in New York and I assume elsewhere. And they would have these dinners. You probably went to one or two of them. I don't think I've ever been invited, actually, which maybe (laughs) maybe just like you're getting fired from the New York Observer. I'm 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 going to take that as a good thing. Where they would invite journalists and it was all very like, one, very swanky, nice restaurants, but also just, it was like, we're just, we just want to listen and we really are interested in what you're up to. And because this was right when they were launching their news initiatives yes. and they were sort of partnering with local people and they would be talking about that with great enthusiasm. But then I was sort of watched it long enough to see what they actually did that came out of that. And it was ended up being so inconsequential. Then CJR hosted a mini conference in Silicon Valley trying to sort of put journalists and the social networks together to talk to each other. We called it, Can This Marriage Be Saved? And it was just so obvious to me that their worldview and our worldview were entirely different. But when we were talking about objectivity or facts or rigor, they like honestly did not understand what we were talking about. They just fundamentally don't get that language. No, they, they, they totally didn't get the language. And it was all, all about, well, if people are engaging it, how can it be wrong? And what business of it of ours is it to tell them they can't 
do that if they're doing it. The mere fact that it's commercially successful and that it results in clicks is a defense of, of, of what it is. And you journalists are sort of like somewhat old traditionalists who want to stifle speech. Trapped in a world where you believe there's a truth. Trapped in a world in which you're trying to defend your own reason for being. Yep. Why do they want to engage with us? Why do they care about participating in this? Because they realize they can't exist without us, so they have to keep, they have to placate us. I think they're scared of regulation. Yep. And I think they uh, view us as sort of part of their lobbying effort. What, what's been really interesting is they're trying to hug us to make us one and the same with them in terms of protecting against encroachments on free speech. So they're That's, they're trying to say like, hey, we're in the same we're in the same game. Yep. Like if they go after us, they're going after you. So we need we're on the same team, right? Right. Whereas they want free speech. I think about this a lot. They want freedom of speech without responsibility. And to me, those two things have always gone hand in hand in the old world of journalism. You get freedom of speech, but with it comes enormous responsibility. Right. They're very clear on the fact that they make no claim to the veracity of what they run. I mean, they keep pushing back against this idea that they're editors or that they're a news organization. And it's because if you're, if you are that, then you get held to your point, you get held responsible for what you say. Yep. I was thinking about that when I was looking into this and, and reading what you guys wrote that the past six months of headlines about Facebook's partnership with all these fact-checking organizations to that it paints a pretty bleak picture. You've had Snopes come out and walk away from, mm -hmm. from it saying they're, they're not serious about this and that it just, it isn't working. Is that what you're seeing yeah. more broadly too? Yeah. yeah. I mean, people are saying one, they're getting no feedback from Facebook on what they're what they've seen as a result. So we don't know whether this has resulted in less. In, in, so they still uh, won't won't provide transparency. No. Just it's the same answer as it was when we would go to them early on and say, what's going to happen to this content? It's yeah. a lack of transparency is yeah. the issue. Yeah. And, and the people who are in these partnerships are like, we really believe this word partner. And we thought we were in this together, but you're not telling us anything about what the impact of this has been. So again, then, it's a, it's a one-way partner organizations feed information to Facebook and then it goes into the black box. Right. And critically, Facebook puts out a press release that the partner organizations are involved in this. But there's also this really interesting thing happening with academics too, where they had been brought in to work with Facebook and on dealing with some of these problems and were promised access to more of the back end of Facebook's data. Yep. And they're just not getting it. <laughs> and a lot of them are, again, are saying, like, this is a pointless exercise. Like, we're being used as window as dressing big, big here. big leaves, window yeah. dressing to make yeah. it look like they care and are yeah. trying to and they're do just something. Not and then there's this sort of, like, you know, bobbing and weaving on Facebook's part. Well, yeah, there was a misunderstanding of the kind of data that we were going to be giving you. Or yeah, it's coming. It's just taking us a while. Legal is reviewing it. And I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. What about Google? Do you see any difference between how Facebook handles this and how Google handles it? Or is it less important for, for Google? Yeah, I think it's somewhat less important. I mean, they also don't have these third-party yes. fact-checking partnerships. Right. I mean, the issue with Google is it's a bit harder to pin down having to do with what they surface. But ultimately, that's that really gets you into the, the black hole of nothingness and trying to understand how these places work. But to their credit, I guess, they haven't spent quite as much effort on the PR front. 
yep. as Facebook has. They're not trying to portray themselves as a friend and a solver of these problems. They're also not facing quite the same storm of, of controversy that yeah. Facebook is, right? Yeah, the, the, the sort of closer corollary to Facebook is Twitter Yep, because they're right in the heart of a lot of these issues. And what do you see Twitter doing? I don't know, man. I am so <laughs> fascinated by Jack Dorsey. Whenever he talks about this, is like the world's head explodes usually, right? Yeah, because it's hard to know from what he says what that actually translates Yeah, but into. you have seen this. It's a similar issue where you have seen like them trying to like figure out what do you have to say to get banned? Yeah. Where does that line get drawn? And then, and then that sort of forces them to sort of lean into their role as arbiters of speech. But it's like Alex Jones, clearly bad. Right. But there's a lot of people who are like, say things like Alex Jones that are still on there. Has anybody that you know have taken a look at this and seen if there's any consistency in who gets banned, who gets silenced, who's yeah, allowed to continue some speaking? work on it. it. It tends just to be very anecdotal and ad hoc. Yeah, um, not systematic. Yeah, it's not systematic. I mean, I just, I sort of laugh, I have to laugh. They just get tied up in balls over this stuff. Like, And again, it goes back to what I was saying about the difference in worldview. Yes. This is so not what they want to be doing. Yes. It's a, so fundamental, it's a fundamental conflict in the way they are and right. the way they see the it world. It involves a judgment call. It, it involves something other than data responding to demand. And they just are constitutionally really ill-equipped. I was struck by, it was some quotes from a story about Facebook's lack of transparency, that they just don't provide clarity, that you don't know how many users the fact checks reached, how many mm. people clicked on the related links from a false yeah. story. Do these fact checking projects slow or even halt the spread of any dis any disinformation? And all of that is still a black box. Mm -hmm. How does this all come to a head in the election that's coming, do you think? I mean, I fear that we're going to be entering a whole new zone of this because of the move towards closed networks, yep. both on Facebook. And by the way, I think they're doing this in part to escape scrutiny, but also... And what the, do you mean by the move to closed networks? Well, they've now sort of announced that they're tweaking their focus to be about more tighter groups that you're invited yes. into. WhatsApp is a closed network. What you're going to see is like targeted campaign messages. Uh, I was in Brazil during their presidential election and they did blast out TV ads, but a lot of the campaign messaging was over WhatsApp groups and it was location based. So if you lived in this certain district, everybody who lived in that district was getting this message and everybody who lived in that district was getting a different message. And it made it really hard for journalists to like understand what these campaigns were saying. Because they were saying different things. Because they were saying, and if, you, and if you as a journalist weren't in that area, you weren't seeing it. Wow. So that's going to be happening in this election. And, and that tactic has already been previewed in other countries. It's and been now previewed. It's gonna... And, by you know, Steve Bannon was working with Bolsonaro in Brazil. So you're going to see wow. it happening here. So if you think about that, you know, if you're in a contested race in Wisconsin versus Michigan versus Florida, you're going to be seeing from the Trump campaign different messages. And it's going to be really hard for journalists to sort of parse that. That is actually incredibly frightening. Speaking about, you know, back to this idea that as a nation to function, you need at least some idea, shared idea of what the truth is, right? Yeah. And if you can't even, if there's no truth even around what a political candidate is standing for yeah. and very, no, no ability to get to look into that because it's different depending on who the message is being given to. It's like taking these private dinners where, you know, sometimes people record them and catch, uh -huh. you know, a Hillary Clinton or, or saying, saying something terrible, but now that's taken to a whole new level, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that even if, given that, the active efforts to, let's just say, misuse these platforms, even if they wanted to do something, could they? And we'll, we'll just stick with Facebook for the sake of keeping it clean. Is it such a game of whack-a-mole as well-funded interests try to figure out how to, how to use this to their own advantage that even if they were serious, could they get out in front of it? There's a lot of self-reporting that goes on, especially on hate speech and dangerous speech. I mean, you see this when there's a Christchurch shooting yep. and the shooter is live streaming I mean, it took a little while for Facebook, I mean, minutes, but they quite quickly took it down. So, and that was par- partly because people were like, hey, you have to take this down. This guy is doing this. There's a lot of self-reporting that goes on. They can mobilize. But that's specific and egregious rather than subtle and right. and a judgment call, right? Yeah, right. And so isn't the latter where, where they get into trouble? Yeah, it is where they get into trouble. Although let's remember that these companies have pretty much unlimited resources. Right. Right. It's not like our newsrooms where we're, we're getting rid of the copy desk because we, you know, we need to cut, but it's, it is about the very ethos of these things and sort of what do they see them as? Again, they don't view themselves as content players. I mean, they view themselves purely as sort of connectors of people. Even if they wanted to tackle this, it seems to me that the threats are growing so quickly now with this. When Mark said that Facebook made an execution mistake when it didn't act fast enough to identify this doctored video of, of Nancy Pelosi, yeah. where her speech was slurred and distorted. And the tools that can allow somebody to present a distorted image of reality that isn't even obviously false in the way that in the way that in the old days, if I called the CEO and said, back to my back to my intro, is your car blue? Is it pale blue? Is it, right? right? We can all yeah. agree on that color. Yeah. But when images of reality that we perceive are being altered, what do you do in that yeah. case? I think ultimately they're going to have to figure out what sort of brand they want to have. And there's not a lot that media organizations can do to affect that. I mean, I think the big mistake that was made was Again, turning over this audience, but then what that what that did was it put journalism in the same feed as bullshit and cat videos and listicles. Russian dis, disinformation and listicles. And if you're a reader of your Facebook feed, the New York Times story doesn't look any different from the Daily Caller story from the, the the video of your kid's first day of school. It's all there. That's a really interesting point. It's not just that we supplied the content to them. It's that it also stripped any ownership away, any any obvious signs of ownership or not, brand. Not just ownership, but sort of like authority. It yeah. stripped away any differentiation. Differentiation, between that's the word you, I was looking for. Between you as a serious journalist uh, and the very earnest citizen journalist and the very manipulative citizen journalist and the and the active information disinformation agent like yeah. we all look the same yeah. and so i think you know and we we as media companies turn that over to facebook and we said it's cool to do that right again um, desperation right yeah and so i think the onus i think is going to be on media companies to say you know facebook you can't put our shit on your on your platform you you, we're, you don't have the right you can do that you can do that you can do that and has anybody done that one of the biggest papers in Brazil is like basically said, we want nothing to do with Facebook. We're off. Really? Yeah. FOIA. 
And what, um, and what was Facebook's response to that? And what was, is it too soon to see the business I think repercussions? It's probably too soon. And I haven't yep. seen what that all means. Yep. But we can walk away if we want. And it doesn't even matter. At CGR, we have our own relationship with Facebook as a platform. And we are like everybody else as, they, as they've disincentivized news. I mean, everybody's traffic on Facebook is dramatically less. So it's sort of good because it's, it's easier good. to pull the plug, right? It's totally easier to pull the plug. What else do you think the press can do, given the beleaguered state of our industry, which isn't getting any better despite all the bad decisions we made to try to save ourselves? How much can we affect the discourse and how much how much can we shape truth? How much power does the press still have to do that? That's a big goal. Yeah. Shaping truth. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, what are you? We'll, 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 what we'll what kind truth, of optimist are you? Truth with a, cap, a small T instead of with a capital T. Okay. I think this conversation about social platforms and what they, how they view the world and what they do is important. But I, I think we sort of have to stick to our own knitting in a way. Yep. I think we have to sort of control the things that we can control, which is we got to make sure we, we ourselves get stuff right. So, you know, going, this is how we began this conversation, like moving away from like just fire hose content that may or may not be totally true. And repeating things um, that other people have published. Yeah, without... and repeating things that other people yeah. have published. And also like, I mean, right now, the thing that I fear is that we're in this kind of like ridiculous spiral of nonsense. Like, I mean, I've been following this whole thing with Trump and the hurricane cone and how he used a Sharpie to broaden. Did you follow this? I actually did not. And I'm proud of myself okay. that I didn't. <laughs> but that's the point. I think you made the right call. But what, so what, just if I can give people the 10 second version of this. So the National Weather Service had, had you know, they do these maps that show what, where the likely direction of these hurricanes, um, what the direction is. Um, Trump made some comment that Alabama was in peril. The National Weather Service hadn't said that Alabama was in peril. And he kept, and people were calling him out saying like, you're the president, you're telling Alabamans to be worried. The National Weather Service says they shouldn't. That's not right. So Trump actually took a Sharpie and doctored the National Weather Service map and added his own cone and then held it up and said, hey, look, see? And people were like, actually, you added that. Well, if you think maybe that maybe this is a positive sign, given that Trump was one of the original um, proponents or users of fake news. Right. If he's now getting called out on it. But to your point, like so there's been like endless, endless coverage of this Sharpie gate and these cones and endless commentary about this. And does that really contribute to the trustworthiness of news organizations? I think the outrage meter is sort of broken. And we just go, everything is a kind of like five alarm fire. And I think that ultimately costs you credibility. credibility. And part of what exacerbates that also is the rise of a lot of, I'm going to call them publications, but it's making opinion pieces out of somebody else's news, right? Yeah. So it causes this this mass proliferation of anything that people deem interesting because it's not just Facebook and Google that are sort of parasites on the back of news organizations. It's many other news organizations that are parasites on the back of things that might be reported by the New York Times and the Journal yeah. and then are turned into opinion pieces by others right i think it's i think these social networks have become kind of distractions for for us to stop you know to not look closely enough at our own failings you know it's fun to sort of beat up on them and i like doing it but there's a lot that we need to do to to sort of police ourselves can we do it given the state of our industry is that realistic 
Yeah, I think it's sort of, it has to be necessary. It may not be sufficient for our survival, but it's necessary. Oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think journalism is going to survive. The practice of writing down stuff people say and trying to figure out what, what is real and what's not real. And now you're sounding like the believer in truth. <laughs> well, it's not true. I mean, well, yeah, I, I think you ultimately have to, right? right? What's, um, what, what's the alternative? What are we in this business for? I mean, I do think that, you know, the world is a, is confusing. And I, you know, it goes back to sort of very grade school-y kind of things about like, you know, telling the truth, holding the power accountable, standing up for people who don't have a voice. I mean, all of these are kind of journalistic bromides that actually are real. That actually are true. Everything important you need to know you learned in kindergarten. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, one of the, we publish out of Columbia and I have a kind of side view into journalism students. And those values are are really evident in this in the students that have come in over the last couple of years. You see a return to idealism. Really idealistic, um, not idealistic about the world, but idealistic about the potential for journalism to do something about it. What you can accomplish with honest words, fairly reported and yeah. and meticulously sourced. Yeah. Now yeah. these students are are super convinced of that. Whereas, which is great because, I mean, there was a time recently where there was a lot of cynicism in journalism. Do you see specifics happening in our industry that make you optimistic that we're, that we're turning the tide? There's been some amazing reporting uh, around Trump and there's been some amazingly terrible reporting around Trump. There's been both. I mean, I'm happy to see a little bit more sense of accountability among these organizations, although we recently launched a project that was a little bit cheeky, but we installed public edit. We we announced that we have public editors for right. CNN, the New York Times, Washington Post, and MSNBC because they don't have them. Um, there's no way for readers to have any sort of meaningful feedback with these places. And so we hired people to do that job for them. And then I got to say, I mean, the Times especially has been pretty engaged with us on this. So I think, I, I think that's positive. I mean, I wish they would have to bring back their own public editor because I just think that the, that feedback loop with the public you want people to feel like you're standing up for them and you're asking the questions that they would ask. But if you have no mechanism to know that, it's hard. Yep. Would it make you optimistic about the media's interaction with social media if you saw, say, the New York Times or the Journal do what the paper in Brazil did and say, we're out? I think so. You know, I've, I've always I've been intrigued to see the number of journalists who have said, who have individual journalists who have said, I'm off. And they always come back. I know. <laughs> Are you on or off? I So I don't use Facebook. What about uh, Twitter? But I am on Twitter. Aggressively? And, uh, I come and go. I'm half-hearted about it. Mm. But I think it is it is such a source of information, particularly about financial news, that in such a way to get in touch with people, I, I would argue there's a little bit more to the t- Twitter universe than seeing your own name and the, how good you feel when you get likes on your, on, on, on your tweet. It also is a very real tool. Yeah. So I think it's hard to disconnect. Yeah. Maybe there, and I think it would probably be hard to disconnect if you're a political reporter too, because so much breaks there. I mean, to your point, we've given them the power. Come back to some way in which this is all going to get better. Yeah. I mean, I, I think journalism is no different than the rest of the country. I mean, I think we're in a really unsettled, unsure, uncertain time. But it's just, it always is striking to me when you leave the country and just see and realize how deep in the soup we are here. Yeah. Right? Yes. And being over there, I mean, I, I actually was reading the Murdoch-owned newspaper there, and, and it's sort of like 
it struck me that I was about three-fourths of the way through the paper and hadn't read Trump's name yet. Wow. And I was like, wow, that is amazing, and it's awesome. Yep. Right? And, and then, of course, they did have it in the end. But, um, and that's back to your point about how we're all playing a g- the game of clickbait every, yeah. every bit as much as Google and Facebook are. Yeah. We have to look in the mirror ourselves, too. Yeah, right? and that's why I brought up this, like, Trump hurricane thing. I mean, th- there was like, there was story after story after story after story about this. And I think it sort of feeds our, it feeds this narrative we have in our mind that he's an, either an idiot or he's dangerous or he's, he doesn't care about truth. And yep. all of those things, I think, frankly, are true, but hitting them over and over and over again for hours and hours in like really big national publications, I'm not sure is helping any of us. Yeah. When you think about this broadly and you, you look at, at how quickly this is mushrooming with the ability to doctor images, do you think the government needs to get involved? You've got DARPA announcing this program where they're going to try to suss out fake news and halt it. Can you envision a world in which government regulation can be helpful? Gosh, I hope I know. No. No. Okay. You hope I, we can I, fix our problems ourselves. We have to. But and have I just to. don't. I mean, if, if we thought Facebook and, and Google were, had a hard time defining the line. Do you really want the U.S. government you, you defining really what don't. the line is? You really right? don't. I mean, you see, you see this in, I mean, I worked in Britain for a while, and they have a pretty aggressive regulator there that, that gets involved in some of these issues. And, and inevitably, it's not good for, right. for free speech. That's actually interesting. If you have government defining what truth is, then it's antithetical yeah. to the very notion of freedom of speech, right? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, think, that's, I don't think that's the answer. Well, I'm not sure we got to to, to the Sorry. right answer, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it was totally fascinating. And thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Truth be told, that's not the way I expected the conversation to go. I thought Kyle would be far more focused on Facebook, on social media, on blaming these companies for all of the problems in journalism. Of course, all of this is an issue, but I hadn't thought about how much we, meaning traditional media, sowed the seeds of our own problems and how we continue to do so. I'm not sure I see the way out, but it's actually nice to think that we, that I, do have some degree of control, maybe just by remembering those lessons I first learned as a fact checker all those years ago. Double and triple check everything. Details matter. Be fair. Try for truth. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Laura Hyde. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Rostkowski. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know which episodes you've most enjoyed. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling 
because I was like, this is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.